0: Hello, 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 and welcome to The Five Things. It's everything you need to know this week in social. We're your friends from Gray, breaking it all down for you. And when I say friends, I mean our friends, Tommy. Hello, Tommy. We're
1: friends of the pod.
0: And our friend, Juliana. Hello, Juliana.
2: So nice to be considered a friend.
0: You are a friend. And I'm your (laughs) friend, Joey. We are, we're friends of the pod. Uh so it's been a huge week in social. There's a lot to dive into again. So last week our episode ran a little long, so I totally understand if you want to listen to this episode in 1.5 speed. We all've got lots of things to do. You're busy, we're busy. So we're just going to dive right in. Uh this week, uh Tommy's going to talk to us about Instagram who announced Instagram video. And then Tommy's going to talk to us about Facebook investing $50 million into building the digital metaverse. Can't wait to hear about that. And then Juliana is going to break down Twitter, opening up professional profiles and Snapchat launching a run for office portal. And last and certainly not least, we're going to have a group discussion about the Facebook whistleblower who appeared in front of Congress and the Facebook outage. We all know it's the big story, so we will get into it. All right. First and foremost, Tommy, talk to us about Instagram video.
1: So to use a clickbait headline, Instagram is killing IGTV. That's not actually true. What's actually happening is that Instagram is now combining IGTV's long-form video and Instagram feed videos, you know, the ones you post in a normal photo dump sort of thing, into a new format simply called Instagram video. These videos, both long and short, will be found in on user profiles in a new video tab. Meanwhile, when people actually encounter these videos on Instagram in their feed, they be able to tap anywhere on the video to enter a full-screen viewing mode. And after watching, they can choose to keep scrolling to discover new videos from the creator or tap back to get back to the normal viewing schedule. None of these changes will impact what Instagram is doing with Reels. However, the company's short form video platform and TikTok rival will continue to remain separate. They won't mix at all um obviously igtv ads will no longer be called igtv ads they're simply going to be called in-stream video ads a lot catchier um and creators can continue to monetize their long-form videos and brands can use the format as well but if they want to be able to boost their videos to reach more people they'll need to be longer than 60 seconds um also the igtv app is not going away Full disclosure, I was not aware that there was an IGTV app until reading this article. Um, but it's also being rebranded as Instagram Video and will host Instagram Video formatted content along with Insta Live videos. But again, Reels is separate. Reels is its own sort of real house, if you let me make a really bad pun. So this change makes a lot of sense for me. Um, IGTV was a bit of a competitor to Google's YouTube, but it was already losing ground as a standalone product and brand ahead of this change. In early 2020, Insta dropped the orange IGTV button from the homepage due to a lack of traction. Um, Speaking of this oft-forgotten IGTV app, while Instagram had a billion downloads, the IGTV app had only 7 million. That's million with an M opposed to billion with a B. And this also is really in line with Instagram's move to becoming more focused on streaming and streaming video content. Um, Adam Aseri, the Instagram chief, said recently that Instagram was no longer a photo sharing app, noting the company's prioritizing video in order to, again, have competition with TikTok and YouTube. So this to me, a very simple change that will make the viewing process of videos a lot more streamlined, a lot easier, more user friendly. And also, again, keep Instagram on this path of becoming a better short-form content machine. So I'm interested to see what you guys think
0: of this. Yeah, Tommy, I'm really glad that I wasn't the only one who didn't know that IGTV was its own app. Um, so, Juliana, I'm curious what, who you think benefits the most from this change. Is this an Instagram self-promotion thing or does this benefit them? Does this benefit the user? Who, who is this good for?
2: I think one of the bigger issues that Instagram had in kind of trying to add this like video sharing component to it was just kind of how stilted and unsmooth the navigation of it all was. There's the feeling that Yona know, in, in a TikTok or even you know YouTube with its autoplay algorithm, you can kind of just get lost in what you're watching for, you know, hours on end. But with Instagram having it that you have to, you know, go to one tab to view long-form videos, go to another tab to view photos, you have to go to another tab to view short-form videos, it just makes it that you're not really able to kind of get immersed into the experience. And so I think on one end, end, it really benefits Instagram for allowing people to kind of just focus and be on the app in one to kind of smooth go. But I'm very interested in seeing what this will look like for creators who... Perhaps hadn't taken advantage of IGTV and want to add a little bit more of the the video functionality and video type content into their repertoire without having to like master a whole different way of drawing people over to that tab.
0: yeah, a few weeks ago, i I proposed the question, What if Reels became its own app, not knowing that IGTV had its own app, which apparently nobody did. Um, but now it seems like Instagram is making Instagram the Reels app. Um, And, uh, you know, we said Adam Aseri a few weeks ago mentioned that it's no longer a photo sharing app and they're leaning in heavier on video. So I think I think this is good. I think this will be interesting and good for good for the user as well. Um, Okay, speaking of Facebook, let's jump over to the metaverse. Uh, Tommy, please break it all down for me. Tell me what is the metaverse and explain it to me like I'm five.
1: Oh, dear. So I'm going to use the words of the illustrious, innovative Amanda Davis, who knows the metaverse a lot better than I do. But according to her, love you, Amanda, wish you were here. All The metaverse is pretty much all of our existing social networks with adding in a layer of AR and VR interactivity while also adding in layers of e-commerce. So we're already sort of in a metaverse, due to things like Oculus and the e-commerce that comes with it, but what's happening is brands and companies are really trying to make it I, this is probably an incorrect comparison, but you think of you know, a ready player one and that interactivity and seeing truly a universe to use Metaverse happening in front of you. So it's just it's basically a Pokemon evolution of the internet, now with touch and feel and sight. Um and the news is that Facebook has announced that they will invest 50 million to partner with organizations to responsibly build this metaverse. They have a fund officially named the XR Programs Research Fund that will support academic research into the future of a digital first cross-platform social interaction metaverse platform. The company partnered with Howard University among others and will work with policymakers and researchers to ensure that the future computing platform is being developed responsibly amidst privacy, equity, and safety concerns. They're making it sort of as, as safe a space as possible, which given kind of the fifth thing today is a little a little bit funny, um, but the intention is there. And Facebook is one of the many companies attempting to sort of get in to the metaverse game. Amazon's trying to compete. Google's making a run for it. All these platforms are, in a sense, trying to be the first to make a connected metaverse platform and have the biggest share of the pie for what could very well be the future of the internet and online human interaction. Facebook already has invested heavily in virtual reality and augmented reality. That's what VR and AR mean. Developing hardware such as Oculus VR headsets and are working on AR glasses and wristband technologies. So this new research fund is just the next step in its plan towards, I don't know, world domination, um, trying to make the metaverse their own. And this to me is a clear example of a kind of thinking I have, Where just because I don't understand something or can't grasp it immediately, it doesn't mean that I can write it off. Like there are real stakes in the metaverse, and there are heaps of money being thrown around by the world's largest corporations. Get it or not, this could be very well our future. I think the biggest takeaway for brands and marketers and for people in general is that we need to get ready for this and sort of arm ourselves with knowledge over what this could be and make a plan for it because it's probably coming. It's it's there. It's on like our doorstep.
0: Yes. And it reminds me and Julian, I'm curious if you see the same connection here, but it reminds me of about mm, 10 years ago, maybe a few less when everything was going towards mobile and it was the race towards mobile and how can we get apps on phones and in people's hand is this the same thing, and will it catch on outside of tech and in in the world because it's not tangible?
2: Well, I mean, like on on one end, I think that just in general, the advancement of technology and the way that we're able to experience like the digital world is something that we're just kind of barreling towards that regardless but I would also think of it in the same way, maybe less so the adoption of everything to mobile, but think about like Google Glass, where it came on the scene, everyone's like, holy cow, I'm going to be like Terminator scanning the world in front of me as I walk down the streets. But you have to recognize that there is a learning curve for something that is so different from how we experience life, how we take part in you know the internet. And so I don't think that it's something that you know, it's going to immediately catch on with every single person. And we're going to see that tomorrow we'll be doing our business meetings through that kind of ominous Facebook 3D <laughs> meeting uh, platform that they're trying to, to to roll by people. But I do think that this is kind of the type of thing where you want to watch where are people starting to latch on to and what ideas do seem to be fruitful so that you aren't kind of left in the dust as something does kick up.
0: Yeah, if I had to put my economist hat on, which I wish I actually had one, uh, it would almost say it would almost feel like let's see how the markets play out, let's see let's see what people want and and how this shakes out because Google Glass clearly was not something people were clamoring for. Um, Okie doke, let's switch over to Twitter now. Juliana, tell us about um, Twitter opening up applications for professional profiles. This is really interesting.
2: Yeah, now instead of an economist hat, you just have a economist Twitter profile. So there's that for you, Joey. Always an option. (laughs) So yeah, something uh, pretty interesting that happened recently is Twitter opening up applications for professional profiles. Uh, And so Twitter for professionals is essentially meant to be the single destination for businesses, creators, developers, publishers, basically any person who has sort of a professional identity in order to showcase their content, products and services, uh, whatever have you, and all of this being on Twitter free of charge. And this is a really interesting tool, just as we see that, you know, in general, when people want a brand's attention, you know, you don't just call them, you don't just email them, you go on Twitter, you go on their at, and then you kind of publicly call them out either for positive or negative in order to get uh, attention. And that's really where we're seeing people are going to communicate with brands. So this is a really intelligent idea for Twitter to provide a space for people who are brands, companies that are brands, whatever have you, to have sort of a nice professional, almost storefront landing page on Twitter that people can go to in order to interact with and learn more about them. So Twitter professional profiles will allow for business to include their location, hours of operation, additional contact methods, obviously you know any of the products being able to be listed underneath there. So it's just a very interesting idea of kind of the way that you'll have these two forms of Twitter existing in one space. Or one, it's people, you know, yelling ratio at the senator because they tweeted something insensitive about income inequality. And then right next to it, you'll be able to find out the hours of your local RVs. So both of these existing in one space will be very intriguing, but also will be interesting to understand is how brands use this kind of more official presence for their benefit. Given that right now, you do see that a bunch of brands have Twitter profiles and that hasn't seemed to impact them, uh, you know. In, in too dramatic of a way, not having sort of an official storefront presence, but especially for smaller brands, will this allow for discovery and exploration and people actually maybe linking out from Twitter and going forth and buying from them in a lot more of a streamlined way when you're able to have that more professional identity.
0: Tommy, as the person who would probably have to do this for Gray, if if Gray were to do this, do you think brands, specifically larger ones, um, will want to jump on to this this new tool?
1: I had that same thought as Jules was talking of, wow, this will probably be my job in the next coming months, (laughs) getting ratioed by 13-year-olds on Twitter. Um, I think this will be something that brands will want to use because of that, as Julesy said, that streamlined sequence of being discovered on the app, seeing your product, and then taking you to either a landing page or just to the e-commerce site. I think it'll be interesting though to see how larger brands, say, you know, say a Bud Light, um, how will they use it when they are basically not a commodity, but they're one of the largest beer brands? I'm wondering is this almost too intimate and too one to one for big brands to properly use? Or not properly use, it, it just be there's an extra challenge to it. I feel like this will be wonderful for small businesses, people who make products and kind of grew their audience from organic Twitter. But I think there's going to be an interesting challenge and one that I would face with bigger brands using it. I think that's going to be solved through really proper community management work using the modules as best you can and figuring out, is is your goal to get people buying on the site? Is it to get people to your own homepage? I think brands who are that big need to have a pretty clear end game in mind for how they want users to interact with them on Twitter and how they want the interaction to go.
2: And something as well that, you know, kind of just sparks to me is how this will be utilized by creators specifically who their brand is kind of just talking on Twitter, who they can't really have this separate profile, thinking about journalists, thinking about influencers, thinking about people who end up becoming part of the comedy community just because they're getting, you know, XK likes on their tweets, you know, will they desire separating this kind of organic human presence with a business one? And if so, will that be a benefit to them to have almost like a LinkedIn profile that's maybe like the greatest hits, the cleanest version of themselves? Or will that actually kind of prove to be a little bit difficult to to hold in both hands?
0: It'll be very interesting to see how this rolls out. Um, this is really exciting. Okay, Juliana, let's close down Twitter for a second. Open up Snapchat. Talk to us about uh, Snapchat launching the Run for Office portal. Can't wait to hear about this.
2: Yes. Closing Twitter, opening Snapchat, a 12 a.m. classic over here at my household. Uh, So, yeah, this is very intriguing. I would definitely say that on the surface, it was very news that makes you go, okay, why not? Uh, Snapchat launched a run for office portal that's encouraging users to consider political careers. Uh, it's wild. So this new tool is aimed at guiding uh, Snapchat's younger user base to consider running for political office. This run for office mini is a set of applications that run within Snapchat that'll allow Snapchat users to explore issues they care about and find information about political offices in their area code. Uh, Also allows them to find issues that are important to them and then sources them out to information about upcoming elections on the federal, state, and local levels and also allows them to say, hey, if you're really interested in civic issues, perhaps you should consider running for this type of office. If you're really interested in waste management, oh boy, do we have an idea for you. So it's just a very interesting way of kind of taking away the obfuscation that is kind of inherent in becoming part of the political system and making it very digestible and easy to understand for younger users. And moreover, kind of giving them a feeling that it's a lot more palatable and easy to become involved in political office if you just kind of start with what you're passionate about and then find out things that, that link to that. Uh, what's really interesting about this, though, you know, I'll admit on my first read, I was like, What is Snapchat doing? Especially when we have so many other social media sites that are running as far away as possible from any conversation about politics, any kind of recognition that they could be talking about politics. But Snapchat really has, time and time again, recognized the power in making sure that the youth are civically involved. You know, back in 2018, they were putting out get out the vote efforts and, you know, added a voter registration option within its app. In 2020, they included a voter guide and a voting checklist to make sure that users could um, register to vote. And in 2020, the company even said that it helped more than 1.2 million of its users register to vote, and half of those being first-time voters. So this is something that Snapchat has long been passionate about, this idea of the power of the local community, the power of the individual to engage with the local community. And so despite the fact it might seem a little Odd, and I, I think there, you know, can be some people who are detractors who might balk at the idea of a company trying to, you know, get people civically involved and, you know, what's their their agenda. But I think this really just speaks to Snapchat's ethos of, you know, it's about community and it's about the community that you build and the community you're able to create. So I'm very intrigued.
0: Yeah, it's it's a very uh, intriguing idea that they're running at, I mean, especially with all of the get out the vote and all the checklists and all the things that you've, that you outlined there, Tommy, I'm curious, and I don't mean to, you know, paint uh, these platforms with a, with a big brush here, but does this sort of set up Snapchat as the pro-democracy platform?
1: I think this sets up Snapchat as the sort of political platform. I think Jules, you mentioned it, how other platforms run away when things could get political or do get political. Uh, Facebook, again, is banned in Australia because of, well, not Facebook, but Facebook comments can be used in court in Australia. And these comments could probably come from political discussions. So I think Snapchat is really the only platform I can think of that's leaning in to this world and trying to make a difference. So I'm not sure if they're the pro-democracy platform, but they're the only one using their voice In this way, and I think also they know their audience, they know their audience is, you know, my age and younger. That's one of the biggest demographics, Gen Z and young Gen Z. And so they have an audience that is maybe not as politically literate as older audiences or older generations. And they find themselves in a place where they can do a net positive for the world, educate kids, get them out, get them involved. So I think they're the pro-politics platform in a way. And what's really
2: interesting, I think, you know, we we spoke a, a couple episodes back, who knows how long now, about that new app, PollMix, that was encouraging Gen Z specifically to have conversations in very short 60-second bursts about the issues that they believe in and kind of, you know, give rationale to beliefs from everything as small as, oh, you know, should this artist be canceled to things as big as, you know, what are we doing for the climate crisis? And so I think this, like, continued work from social media apps to try to make the apathy that younger people might feel, because a lot of things sort of seem to be without purpose, uh, especially with as far as government and politics is concerned, to get them to feel as though they can actually be involved and make a difference that their voices matter. Love it.
0: I can't wait for the day when a candidate stands up on giving a speech that they, after they just won... And thanks, Snapchat. I think that'll be <laughs> that'll be a great day. Um, okay, we're gonna jump in now, uh, head first into the Facebook whistleblower recommending to Congress to regulate the platform. Juliano, start us off.
2: Yes, definitely. And I, I, feel like this is something you know us watching social, uh, <laughs> all have an opinion on. So definitely want to open the floor for your guys' comment, but. In news that everyone listening, you know, you've probably seen in a lot of places, in more than three hours of testimony before a Senate subcommittee, Francis Hogan, um, my apologies if I'm mispronouncing that, who worked on Facebook's civic misinformation team, uh, basically gave a very candid reveal and insight into the, the company's practices, their way of the research that they have on Facebook's impact towards younger users, Facebook's impact or lack thereof on curbing misinformation and kind of encouraging sort of the worst parts of uh, Facebook's social media presence. And in this three hour testimony, what was really interesting was just how many sort of bombshells that Hogan dropped. You know, she acknowledged that she believes Facebook's products harm children, stoke division and weaken our democracy. Um, She even stated that the company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes. And all of Hogan's testimony was essentially not only acknowledging the ways that from Facebook's own research, uh, Facebook has kind of acknowledged the negative impact that they're having on um, you know the youth and democracy, but also secondly, her push was for you know government to intervene and to actually try to get involved either by you know tapping into Facebook's research in order to study the prevalence of hate speech and other harmful content on the platform to kind of, guide the uh, changes that Facebook would need to make in order to be a better platform for all of these reasons. And it was a very interesting moment where, uh, you know, where we normally see kind of partisan conflict. Republicans and Democrats were all in agreement that Hogan's testimony was amazingly needed. Uh, You know, it was equated to some of the big tobacco, you know, they actually cause uh, lung cancer type of testimony uh, back in the the mid-1900s. And, it was a very exciting moment as far as, you know, kind of revealing what I think a lot of people had inclinations of with Facebook. And then secondly, was just kind of seeing the immediate response from the Facebook team and sort of either to trying to discredit Hogan's visibility and her legitimacy in these comments. And secondly, kind of the not answering the question quite yet of seeing that, you know, the, the role of Facebook might be complicated or that it might be you know, harmful in certain ways, but that they're a social media site and they're trying to give users both what they need and also curb the things that they don't need. Uh, so I think it's the, the type of thing that we're hoping will kind of start a, a turn of tides uh, for, for Facebook. And I think will be a great testimony to where government intervention in social media sites goes. So you know, definitely a space to watch, definitely, as, and definitely important to watch how Facebook responds to um, this three hours of testimony.
0: Tommy, what, what stuck out to you the most about, about the testimony?
1: Gosh, what stuck out to me was, I mean, Hogan was on fire. She was a soundbite machine. And I think it was just the level of honesty and candor she brought. And she was so just good at breaking down these complex, you know, algorithmic ways the company works, breaking down how they operate, what the thinking is. It's the first time we ever really had Such a high ranking person inside, you know, the belly of the beast of Facebook come out and kind of reveal the truth to the public about how it operates. So I watched basically the entire thing. It was my Super Bowl as someone who does social for a living. And I was really just impressed and kind of disarmed over the comments that Hogan made over Facebook knowledge, over Instagram harming mental health, and about knowingly causing violence in the world and i think it really will be telling how facebook responds in the next few days or weeks because i don't think there's ever been quite a level of scandal since probably the cambridge analytica uh scandal back in a couple years ago but especially one that is this present and this telling to the audience
0: yeah it, and it's interesting because we, we we discussed most of the things that she testified about on the show over the past couple of weeks. Um, and what was really exciting or scary, depending on who you ask, but there was almost like this split screen happening in the world at the exact same time as this testimony. I was looking at my phone, trying to get Instagram to load, and I thought my internet was down. But Tommy... Tell us what was happening on the other side. What was happening over at Facebook and Instagram?
1: Yeah, so on Monday after Hogan made uh, an appearance on 60 Minutes that night, that Sunday night, from about 12 to 5 o'clock, and I'm sure everyone who listened to this experienced it, Facebook, Instagram, Oculus VR, WhatsApp, pretty much every single Facebook property was totally down around the world. There was a planetary outage of Facebook products, of the website, of the apps, of all things Facebook. It's as simple as that really. We just, it, it, it didn't load. The videos wouldn't load, the posts wouldn't load on any platform. It was really interesting to see. It was a sort of a glimpse for five hours into a world where Facebook wasn't a thing. There was no Facebook. There was no Instagram. There was no WhatsApp. But also it was a reminder to me about how much I use Facebook products. I kept absentmindedly opening Instagram and closing it and opening again and closing again. My WhatsApp group chat was out of, it was non-functioning because we couldn't get the text through. Um, and it was, it was sort of fun. I mean, every brand and person on Twitter was having a Kiki, making fun, just trying to make light of it. And that was all fun and games, but also it was kind of alarming to me to realize how much we use Facebook and how different the world will be without it. So I think this paired with the testimony Hogan gave on Tuesday, we're going to see glimpses of changes of Facebook happen and how we move forward in the future is something that's very interesting to me. So I'm wondering what you guys make of the outage and the whole Facebook is not having, you know, uh, a hot Mark summer, they're having a sad Mark fall. So I'm to see what you guys make of the last 72 hours where Facebook
0: just had a very awful, rotten, terrible, no good, bad day. Juliana, how did you survive? How did you get through the outage?
2: I mean, goodness gracious, I have never opened Fishbowl more in my life. All the kind of superfluous apps that sort of sit on your phone as decoration. I'm scrolling through Pollmix trying to find out what 17-year-olds think about communism, you know, the classics. But what I do think was very interesting especially was, you know, the lack of ability to use WhatsApp, which is almost like if you cut off the cell phones, of millions of people, right? Because that is a primary form of communication for a lot of people outside of the US, and especially for people within the US trying to communicate with family or friends that are um, internationally based. So it was just very wild to imagine a world where that form of communication is just completely cut off, which you know, then brings us to the conversation that you know I think a lot of lawmakers bring forth, which is when does social media cross into public utility? you know, at a certain point, if Facebook is the only thing that is allowing us to converse with our network, you know, does it need to be looked at as something that is sort of here to stay as a core of our country? And do does there need to be government intervention to make sure that it's working well while kind of being this sort of omnipresent thing?
0: What do you think about that, Tommy?
1: I think I was going to say that as well. I mean, look at Europe. WhatsApp is how you communicate. It's great for places who don't necessarily, like not just Europe, for places that don't have cell service but have internet, you can use it as a way to talk to family abroad, um, talk to relatives maybe in countries where people in America emigrated from. We here had backup with cellular device and cellular service, but for large swaths of the world, WhatsApp is the telephone, as you said. So I think there were comments in articles about Facebook needing to separate from WhatsApp have it be a utility because it's used as a utility. It's how people communicate and talk and just, you know, live. So I think that was, I think probably the biggest surprise for me from this outage was how much WhatsApp being down mattered to people. This isn't, people in America don't really understand this because we don't use WhatsApp as much, but I mean, people in Europe do and people in other places do. So I think that will be a conversation that's probably going to happen very soon, given the testimony and given the bipartisan effort to regulate Facebook.
0: Yeah, it's kind of scary that, you know, one chunk of code or one button or one spilled Pepsi on a control panel could bring down all of these uh, major apps and major forms of communication. Well, friends, this has been a wild ride around the world of social media this week. Um, I want to thank you, Juliana for joining us
2: a ball and a half as per usual.
0: And thank you, Tommy as well.
1: I'm always happy to be included, Joey.
0: And of course, thank you to Danielle behind the scenes. Um, and thank you to Guy Rosemary over at Gramercy park studios for cutting and putting this whole thing together for us. If you uh, want to follow us, please, do that on Apple and Spotify. Um, it's a great way to listen to us. Please share the show with your friends, your colleagues, your loved ones. Get, it, get, it, get us out there. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, points of interest, or complaints, send those to podcasts at gray.com and we will field them with a nice reply. And last but not least, we just want to thank you, the listener, uh, for giving us your time and have a great week. Thanks. The Five Things are produced by Joey Scarrillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin, with support from post-producer Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.